everybody. I'm talking with Michelle Ronson, founder of Curiosity Tank, and also social media influencer on LinkedIn around consumer insights. I mean, like it's the title I've always wanted and never gotten. I'm super jealous. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great. I am so glad to be back spending time with you. Support for the Happy Market Research Podcast and the following message comes from Michigan State's Marketing Research Program and HubUX. I've done hundreds of interviews with today's top minds in market research. Many of them trace their roots to Michigan State's Marketing Research Program. Are you looking for a higher paying job to expand your professional network and to achieve your full potential in the world of market research? Today, the program has tracks for both full-time students and working professionals. They also provide career support, assisting students to win today's most sought after jobs. In fact, over 80% of Michigan State's marketing research students have accepted job offers six months prior to graduating. If you are looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. WX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. So you and I and potentially Janet will be having dinner maybe as soon as next week, which is a week before this episode will air in person. We shouldn't tell them where we're going. Oh, it's a week before. Okay. <laughs> it's a week before. <laughs> so it'll have already happened unless they build a time machine. Anyway, that would actually be pretty cool. But if they built a time machine and came back and crashed our dinner, that would be badass. But anyways, <laughs> maybe one day that'll, that'll happen. So you have done a lot. How has COVID impacted you? I am definitely one of the lucky ones professionally. In terms of the courses that I teach and the business that I do, I am a user researcher and I teach user research to people around the world. So I launched my first Curiosity Tank class in the Ask Like a Pro series a week after Shelter in Place. So knock on wood, I mean, that's just gone gangbusters. We're now about to launch our eighth cohort on the personal front, I have an eight-year-old. So I've been managing the parenting COVID situation there as well, which, you know, has been interesting for a lot of parents with young children at home. But thankfully, no one in my immediate family has gotten sick. So I'm knocking on wood. It's been a big challenge for us. The Probably the biggest challenge for me coming into our, yeah, into COVID and then subsequently out of COVID is I have some teenage children from a previous marriage. And those kids, I used to get them half time, but when shelter in place came in to play, all of a sudden it almost turned to, you know, functionally no time because, you know, one household would have COVID and then they would have, you know what I'm saying? So it just like wound up in this like really rough spot with just maintaining the physical proximity to multiple households. If you're a kid stuck in that situation, but it is interesting that like you had mentioned on the career front, there really is a tale of two cities, huh? There's the people that made the transition online before it hit, and they tended to thrive through COVID as all of the in-person stuff shut down and, and those dollars got shifted to a digital framework. And then there's people that just never had 
made the investment in it, you know, to move online and they really functionally struggled. Yeah. We were, we were just talking about the restaurant industry. I mean, that's been incredibly difficult to, to stomach, you know, what's happened there. You know, that's very close to home. Yeah, no kidding. And no pun intended, of course. I have some friends that own a, their restauranteurs and they own a couple of different restaurants and they completely pivoted their business. But what was interesting actually about, they did the whole like handcrafted cocktails to go. Right. Uh, and that part of their business actually went up flourishing. Now, it wasn't the same revenue outcomes that they were used to, but they were at least able to like sustain until things started opening back up. But it's been really interesting watching just the whole like consumer insights space and how some companies have just done remarkably well. And just like, it's like a bullet out of a gun barrel in terms of their, I just, I've met with two companies this week, this week alone uh, in the insight space that I didn't even know about that went from basically, you know, marginal businesses to like really meaningful revenue businesses uh, because they're able to capitalize on the growth of the transition of digital spend. So Let's jump into our topics. What is one mistake that every researcher makes when they first start out? This is such a good question. I don't think there's just one mistake, but I see a lot of common mistakes. I mean, I'm teaching hundreds, I've taught thousands of people in the last couple of years. And I'd say the three big ones that come to mind for me, first is thinking that there's one right way to do research. And there isn't. There isn't one right way. We do have best practices and we have ethical standards that we adhere to, but there's no one right way to write a research plan, to recruit, to gather information, to take notes, to analyze, to synthesize, to present. I mean, all of this really is or can be very creative and there's quite a variety there. The second, I would say, is not understanding the importance of the research plan and developing that in collaboration with stakeholders is absolutely critical in UX research to get that buy-in early on and to align all the stakeholders and document it. And then third would be to dive into one specific tool or platform or method or methodology of before mastering the art of asking great questions in live interviews that yield reliable results. Once you can do that well, once you can conduct a solid interview and leverage those improv skills consistently, you'll be in such a better place to choose the right tool or the method or platform for your question set. But if you start somewhere else, like with a specific platform or tool, you're always going to try to shove your question set into the platform or tool that you learned first. And probably not going to be the right approach because you won't know how to ask the right questions. Yeah, in the right way. Gosh, that's so interesting. And I think you're right. We're more and more, as tools democratize access to consumer insights, right? We're, we're moving more and more to a cookie cutter research approach where, you know, instead of it being handcrafted, I'm leveraging an existing template that's been, you know, whatever cooked up and it's going to auto-generate the outcomes for me on the back end. I see that actually quite a bit, which is hilarious. <laughs> it's sad though, too. I mean, think about that. Think of, think about what that's doing to our industry and think about what that's doing to the data that we're collecting and the decisions that we're making off of that flawed data. 
Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's a, so there's so much, and you know this because you teach it, right? It's, you know, what we do is science. It isn't as simple as enabling Zoom and having a, you know, a human conversation with a participant. The way that you ask questions is really important. The order that you ask questions is important. The amount of leading that you do is important. The amount of breathing that you allow to happen, it's just letting them kind of meander through uh, is really important. I mean, it's just like, uh, it's so easy to demean or take for granted the value of a highly skilled moderator, whether you're doing UX, CX, or qualitative uh, market research. And like those are highly, highly valuable skills that will have a exponentially bigger impact on the organization if they're leveraged as opposed to more of the um, unprofessional person trying to execute those same things. I couldn't agree any more. And also knowing how to delve in and knowing when to stray from your guide and knowing when to pivot or even end a session. Yeah. You know, picking up on someone that may not be qualified, but has, you know, squeaked through the screener. Right. <laughs> had an interesting situation with that. <laughs> Have you had an interesting situation with that recently? Oh, my last cohort, yes, literally was savage to buy two rings of an African mafia. I mean, just they totally got hold of their survey screeners. They took them hundreds of times until they figured out the happy paths. And then once they got to the happy paths, they filled their calendars with bookings I mean, it was just they thought, and, and, and meanwhile, the project manager probably feels like they're just the luckiest person in the world. Oh, the students? Oh, yeah, they did. They yeah. were like, oh, yeah, I have 37 Easy. responses. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, they went so far as to impersonate people on LinkedIn using yeah. those names and uh, fake email addresses and then create fake driver's license to yep. substantiate their idea. I mean, just unbelievable. It's so funny you say that. Literally just today, we're recruiting for this 2,000-person Gen X panel for a client. And it's hard. We've had 30 days to do it. And there's it's multi-country. And today, I got a notice that we had 150 people that, oh, actually, nearly 200 people that joined just like within some hours. <gasps> and your immediate response is like, praise the Lord. <laughs> But then you're like, this, this definitely is not true. So, and then of course we do the, we start looking at the data and it's like, as you just articulated, it was somebody going through the effort of figuring out the happy path and then just exploiting it. I mean, talk about a huge opportunity for someone in our space is to figure out how to qualify, you know, these participants quickly and at an affordable price without having, you know, someone manually go in there. I mean, it's the same problem you have with professional athletes, right? It's like drug testing. The money is not in the drug testing. The money is on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. Well, when I was playing for the Warriors, <laughs> it wasn't that much of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe it's more like cycling. It tends to be highly sensitive to the topic of drugs, not like NFL, but our performance enhancing drugs. But the, the issue is, is really the same, isn't it? Which is, yeah. 
you know, clients are less inclined to, you know, want to pay a lot more for sample that's quote unquote qualified, right? Because they're already getting that. It's, it's really, the money is really on the other side of the equation. As you said, the African mafia in that case, and in my case, it happened to be someplace out of the EU. But anyway, so yeah, it is a, it's a really interesting problem and somebody will make a lot of money on it. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be me. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be me. Maybe we should talk about that at our dinner. Ooh, fun. Okay, good. So um, let's talk a little bit about the solution. So as you think about the three issues that you outlined, I really liked your second one, by the way, the need to align with stakeholders and then document you know, what the objectives are. What do you see as some of the solutions? Very early practitioners often take my courses or inquire about my courses thinking that they're going to learn like how to bake and it's kind of like a factory and you do a and then b and then c and then d sure i mean there are distinct phases in how we do our work but it's much more creative than that right it's a combination of what i like to call as you mentioned earlier science surely but also art and improv and uh you know the art comes in with trying to figure out what you can do in a certain amount of time with a certain amount of budget, with a certain amount of access to the right participants. When the improv comes in and your stakeholders changing their mind 12 times and then, you know, figuring out that some mafia has taken over your schedule. <laughs> but I think, you know, the best way for me to teach people this and to really demonstrate this is to get them as hands-on as quickly as possible. So hands-on experience with not only different types of research in terms of evaluative or generative or whatever, but with different types of researchers and different types of thinkers, right? And then also when I say different types of research or, you know, I mentioned evaluative and generative, but within evaluative, there's different types of research, right? And, and within both any sort of type of research, there's going to be a scrappy approach and then there's going to be a really precious approach. And then there's going to be some approaches that are somewhat in between. Also working with different teams, different teams have different cultures and different participant segments also are going to require a different approach. Also, you know, whatever your study topic is, if we're talking about, you know, curating your favorite fake eyelashes versus homelessness and, you know, something that is a little bit more serious or bankruptcy, the tone's going to change. And different people recruit differently. Are you recruiting yourself? Do you have a research ops person that's helping you on an internal team? Are you using an external recruiter or like a third party tool? Note-taking, I think it, it, the hands-on experience and being open-minded really creates probably the best opportunity to crack that nut in terms of there's one way to approach this. One of the things that I come back to is the sentiment that everybody has a beautiful mind. Your engineer, your writer, your product manager, your manager, your intern, let's get everybody together, you know, and, and share our beautiful minds. And that's one of the things that's really special in the cohort is that the student researchers really get to benefit from not only me, but the other students in the cohort that are coming from a variety of backgrounds. You've been doing this for a while, right? Has there been, as you're, as you're 
getting to know the next generation of researchers or consumer insights professionals, are you seeing differences in terms of where they're weak and where they're strong? I see differences in terms of people that are transitioning from academia versus industry, for sure. They both have very distinct gaps that the other one doesn't. Um, so for example, if you're coming from an academic program in anthropology, psychology, or something along those lines, social sciences, you likely know how to ask a good question. You understand the importance of biases, bias and, and, and removing it. You have a much stronger sense of ethics and things like that, but you probably aren't as familiar with industry and production and working in an agile, collaborative environment and or writing in a really pithy, direct way in bullet points. <laughs> right. On the other hand, if you're coming from industry, you're probably more well-versed in how to work in a team environment and how to communicate crisply and clearly and make presentations, you know, in agile sprints or how to work iteratively. You'll probably have a leg up on that, but not know how to ask a great question or the difference between leading questions and non-leading questions or open questions versus closed questions or what a Likert scale is. I'm certainly not familiar with biases and the importance of mitigating them. So I see gaps, similar gaps more in terms of where you're coming from and what your transferable skills are likely to be. Now, those were huge generalizations there, but yeah. those are those are pretty pretty yeah. pretty standard, I'd say. That actually makes a lot of sense. So when you think about the next generation of researchers, what is it that they want from their manager and or job? I think the first thing they want is a chance. <laughs> they want a shot. They want an opportunity to just get in the door. It's so hard. There are so many you know, mid and senior level positions open now, and the teams are so busy, they don't have time to train. I mean, I know so many companies that just won't even look at junior researchers or new researchers. And when they do, they're looking for those juniors to have a few years of experience. So that's really hard. So I'd say the first thing they want is just a chance or an right. opportunity to break in. I always encourage them to try to get into an established team, not go off and be a researcher of one or solo researcher on an existing team, right. because it's not going to give them the chance to focus on actually doing the work. They're going to be focused on setting up the work and then fighting for the work in many instances. And that really takes away from your ability to actually do the work. You also don't have anybody to learn from. So you're fighting all the fires, you're doing all the logistics, you're analyzing what tools should be put into place. You don't necessarily have the background to make those informed decisions. And that's not, it's not a great setup. Oh, that's so interesting. Another thing is trying to find a mentor mm -hmm. and or a team that they can not only learn a lot from, but that they can feel safe with. And I think safety is a really important part of being able to take chances and grow. Yeah. And do you think the mentor is that you're referencing here? Is it like, if I'm working for somebody else, is it that boss or is it actually outside of the company I work for? I think ideally it's the boss or someone on the team. 
Got it. It's not someone through ADP list or something like that. Gotcha. And they also, they really want to do interesting and meaningful work. Sure. I mean, I have a lot of students that are dying to work for, you know, Facebook or Google, and I have just as many students who would never work, you know, for those types of organizations. So that definition of interesting and meaningful really, really varies. I think that's personal. Yeah. And I mean, we've really seen the world kind of move more and more towards customized to the individual as opposed to broad segments, right? And that's, I think, you know, from a career perspective, people are thinking about that, that stuff on an individual basis, well, as opposed to, you know, everybody wanting to go to this school and graduate and then go work at that company. You know, that's a mistake I think researchers make and even hiring managers make. And I would love to just put this to bed once and for all. There's no one right path to becoming a researcher. We're doing a whole series, QRCA at the annual conference about this. Oh, the places you'll go. Really celebrating the differences in what I'm referring to as the pivots and possibilities that we make as researchers, not only to get into the industry, but within the industry and beyond it. And it's really interesting. And I wish hiring managers weren't looking for this, you know, this HCI degree from Carnegie Mellon, you know, in this like super cookie cutter kind of approach, because people have so much more to give. And that doesn't necessarily dictate whether they're going to be a good researcher or not. You know, I think curiosity and an insatiable desire to learn is probably a bigger indicator than where they went to school. Michelle is the founder of Curiosity Tank. Curiosity Tank is a consulting and education firm specializing in human-centered research, design development, and hands-on learning programs. They conduct and teach design and user research to people and corporations around the world. Michelle, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jamin. Happy to be here.